right. Well, I'm guessing if most of you walked out of church this morning and saw a penny on the ground, that you probably wouldn't bother bending down to pick it up. Some of you would, and I, I, I know some of you would, but most of you probably wouldn't. Because you'd look at the penny and you'd think to yourself, what can I get with a penny? Not much, right? It doesn't hold a whole lot of value to us. But what if you went outside and, and you happened to say, you know what, there's a penny. I'm going to trust that the Lord is giving me a, a, a gift today, even if it's just one penny. I'm going to bend down, I'm going to pick up this penny. You bend down and you pick up the penny and you look at it and it looks a little different to you and, and you examine it a little bit closer and you find that it's a 1943 D Lincoln bronze one cent. Now you might be thinking, and? Well, that penny, there's only about 20 of those believed to be in existence. And that penny recently sold at auction in 2010 for $1.7 million. $1.7 million. So if that was the penny you picked up, your fortunes would have changed quite a bit, wouldn't they? From going, okay, well, I've got one cent. What can I do with one cent? Not a whole lot. Then you realize what it is, and, and all of a sudden you're thinking, what do I have to do to, to make that penny mine? What changes? You see the value of it. When we think about Christ, when we think about Jesus, the, the text before us today is going to hold up Jesus as the most valuable pursuit for any of us in this entire world. Our mission statement here at Compass Bible Church in North Texas is this, to know Christ and to have guitars fall over. No, it's to know Christ and to make him known. That's what we're about. That's everything that we do. So whether that's here in the main service or in our kids ministry or in our student ministry or our community groups, everything that we're doing, everything that we're about is to know Christ and make him known. And this week and next week, we're going to be breaking that statement apart. And, and this week, we're going to focus on what does it mean to know Christ? We talked about that a little bit last week with the concept of adipat, anything, any place, any time, that we're willing to surrender everything to the lordship of Jesus. And we looked at the, 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 the how or the what behind adipat relationship with Jesus last week. This week, we're looking at the why. Why is Jesus worth me saying, okay, Lord, whatever you want from me, take it. Take everything from me. I'm willing to surrender my life to you. Why is he worth everything? And the reason is, is because he is more valuable than anything this world has to offer us. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46 this morning together. Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46 together. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up there. In Matthew 13, Jesus has been telling a, a series of parables about the kingdom of heaven. And a parable is just this. It's a story with a point. It's a story with a point. It was a, a teaching device that Jesus would often employ to communicate a truth in a way that would be more accessible or understandable to the crowds that he was teaching. But it was also a, a way that he would teach in order to hide some things from those, as he would say at the end of all of his parables, who didn't have ears to hear. It's my prayer this morning that we have ears to hear as we turn to this parable in Matthew chapter 13 as Jesus continues to unpack the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, it's an interesting phrase. He's talked about it with the parable of the sower. He's talked about it with the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, if you remember in Matthew's gospel, chapters 5 through 7, Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount where he unpacked the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. What does a citizen of the kingdom of heaven look like? It looks like somebody who lives out Matthew 5 through 7. But then throughout his ministry, he's been pulling back the curtain, so to speak, through the miracles that he's been doing and giving us a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven will actually be like. 
when he cleanses the lepers, when he heals a paralyzed man, when he heals Peter's mother-in-law, when he calms the storm, when he heals the demon-possessed men by casting out the demon, when he raises the little girl from the dead, when he restores sight to the blind, when he gives speech to a mute man, when he heals a man with a, a, a withered hand, when he casts a demon out of a blind and mute man. Jesus is pulling the curtain back on the future kingdom of heaven to show us what it's going to be like when everything that's wrong is now made right. And then we come to our parable in Matthew chapter 13 in verse 44 through 46. Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a treasure that's hidden in a field. It's, it's buried, it's covered over in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought that pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like... Jesus is teaching us. He wants us to understand what is the kingdom of heaven like? And he compares it to two things in these two parables here. The first is this treasure in a field, and the second is the pearl of great value. The treasure in a field. It may sound odd to you. Were there first century Jewish pirates that were going out and buried treasure in their, their backyard? And no. But there was no Chase Bank in Jerusalem during the first century, right? There was no place they could go and open up a checking account and make their deposits. There was no direct deposit or anything like that. And a lot of times what would happen is when a, a foreign army would come and lay siege to a city, the people in that city knew that they were about to be invaded and that they were about to suffer their houses being looted and ransacked and anything of value that they had exposed was going to be taken by this foreign army. So what would they do? Well, they would go out to their fields and they would bury all of their valuables in the fields so that if the foreign army came through and ransacked their house, they wouldn't find anything of value. After the army had passed through, they would be able to then go back out to the field, dig up what they had buried, and bring it back to their home. So a lot of times, people's most valuable assets were in these fields. Sometimes they would be forgotten. Other times, when that army came through, the family unfortunately would not survive or would be carried away into captivity, and that field would be left and the treasure would be left buried in the field. And so in this parable, a man happens upon one such treasure. So what may sound odd to us, to Jesus' original audience, they would think, that'd be great. If we bought this field and we were harvesting and getting ready to plow the field and all of a sudden we came across a, a treasure, that'd be awesome. And then the second thing he compares it to, though, is the pearl, a pearl of great value. Pearls in this day were prized much like diamonds are prized for us today. A pearl was a, a, a great source of wealth and value in a very small package. In fact, having a pearl would be a way to have a lot of wealth without taking up a lot of space. They were incredibly hard to harvest, as they still are today. But even back in, in that day, they were incredibly hard to, to come by. Well, this merchant who made a living traveling around and collecting pearls and finding pearls of various sizes and shapes and then turning around and, and probably selling them himself, he comes upon one that was unlike any he had ever found before and recognizes there's something different about this pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like that treasure and that pearl. Why, though? Why is the kingdom of heaven so valuable? Well, I think one of the reasons the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, as I was alluding to earlier with Jesus' miracles, is because with the kingdom of heaven, what we find is we find everything that's wrong in this world made right. 
So just think about that conceptually for a minute. No more arrogance. No more anger. No more lust. No more physical deformities. No more blindness. No more paralysis. No more cancer. No more mental illness. No more evil anywhere. No more sin. No more depression. No more sadness. No more disappointment. No more frustration. No more unsatisfied longings. No more competition. No more shame. No more guilt. No more fear. No more anxiety. Let me ask you this morning, do you want that? That's the kingdom of heaven. That's one of the reasons why it is so valuable, and yet we have to ask ourselves, why is it like that? And the answer is because God is there. Because the king of the kingdom of heaven is there. Samuel Rutherford, who was a a Puritan pastor, wrote it this way. He said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me. For thou, Jesus, art all the heaven I want. The reason why the kingdom of heaven is so valuable and so desirable is because that's where Jesus is. And because where Jesus is, everything wrong is made right. And we will one day be with him. Christian, be assured that to have Jesus is to have all of the blessings of Jesus, including this future that's guaranteed for us in the kingdom of heaven. A a future that is compared here to this treasure in the field or the pearl of great price. Our first point this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. Understand what you have in Jesus. Understand what you have in Jesus. It's that familiar story, right, that we every so often hear about. It's the, 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 the little old lady who has the, the car in the garage that her husband drove a few times in his life, and, and it's this pristine, super valuable car, and she doesn't know how much it's worth, and somebody comes to buy the car from her and opens up the garage door to find a one-of-a-kind vehicle sitting in the garage and, and just is amazed at the value of this object sitting there when she had no clue the, the, the priceless possession that she had, right? Or if you're familiar with the movie The Sandlot, anybody? Anyone want to admit that in the room? Maybe not. I'll admit it. I grew up on that movie, right? There's the scene where he brings the ball and they, he pitches the ball to, to Benny, and, or to, Benny pitches the ball to him and he hits it and it, it's a home run and everybody's excited for Smalls and everybody's going crazy for Smalls and, and he's just pale. He's just white-faced. And he comes, they're all around him and they're going, what's wrong? You hit a home run. He's like, yeah, but, but, but I, the ball's gone. They're like, it's okay, we'll play again tomorrow. It's like, no, you don't understand. That wasn't my ball. Whose ball was it, Smalls? It was my dad's ball, and it had some lady's name on it. What was the name on the ball, Smalls? I don't know, some lady, Baby Ruth. (laughs) Babe Ruth, right? And they're shocked that that, that this has happened, and they realize that the, the pricelessness of that ball that just got hit over the fence and the beast is there. If you don't know that movie, I apologize, because you have no clue where I'm at this morning with that. Long story short, this kid hits a ball autographed by Babe Ruth over a fence, and there's a mastiff dog over on the other side that just slobbers all over it and destroys the ball. Yeah, but the the point is, they didn't understand what they had. He didn't understand the value of that. Christian, know how much you have in Jesus. Feel that he is the treasure in the field. Feel that he is the pearl of great value. Husband, 
you may be in a marriage that's, that's hard right now. But I want you to know that in Christ, you have everything that you need to be a godly husband, to be a godly leader of your wife, to overlook an offense against you because of all of the offenses that God has overlooked from you against him through Jesus. You have that in Jesus. Wife, if you're in a difficult situation right now and your husband is not leading you the way that he should, know that you have everything that you need in Jesus to still be a godly and submissive wife to your husband because he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because he, though reviled, did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to a father who judges justly and has left us a pattern that we should walk in his example. You have everything that you need in Jesus. Single, Jesus is everything that you need to meet the desires that you have, the desires for companionship, And I know that you long to be potentially, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but if you do, you long for that relationship, you long for that marriage, Christian, single. I want you to know that Jesus is enough for you. Seniors, Jesus is everything that you need to give your life significance because he's given you a mission that has no retirement age. There's never going to be a point where Jesus sidelines you and says that you are not useful to him. Students, Jesus is everything you need because he's proven himself over the last 2,000 plus years. Well, 2,000 years. And if you trust him now, he will continue to prove himself faithful to you throughout the rest of your life. Understand what you have in Jesus. Regardless of where you are in life, he is enough. He's everything that you need. The Bible teaches us this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4. through 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4 through 4 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Christian, You, this morning, have everything necessary for life and godliness in Jesus. Or Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christian, if you are in Christ, you have Christ living within you. You have the Spirit living within you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. You have everything that you need in Jesus. Church, I'm just asking you to see that Jesus is immensely more valuable than anything this world could offer you. Understand what you have in Jesus. In 1976, there was a sermon given by a pastor named S.M. Lockridge. By the way, if you need baby names, here you go. S.M., you want to know what it stood for? Shadrach, Meshach. Yeah, his mom did that to him. Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge was this guy's name. So he shortened it to SM, maybe a good shortening. But SM was preaching at Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego. And you can go and find this, and I encourage you to find it because I won't do it justice. But the the clip is called, Do You Know Him? Just Google on YouTube, SM Lockridge, Do You Know Him? You can do that later. But in this sermon, he just goes off on the value of Jesus. And he comes back to this refrain over and over and over again. I wonder, do you know him? 
Do you know Him? He says He's God's Son, the sinner's Savior, the centerpiece of salvation. He stands alone in Himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives the sinners. He discharges the debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And He beautifies the meek. Do you know Him? Do you know this Jesus this morning? And if you do, do you know what you have in Him? Is He your greatest treasure? Is He your pearl of great value? More valuable than anything this world could offer you. Again, as I mentioned earlier, I think all of us want that reality of what the future kingdom of heaven is going to be like. In fact, ask anyone on the street this week, hey, do you want an existence like this? And they're going to say yes. But the tragedy in that is what they've turned to to find that is not Jesus so often. What they've turned to is maybe drugs and alcohol or sex or identity The whole LGBTQ plus agenda is all about identity and who am I and and where do I find my worth and my value and my identity. Or maybe they've they've looked to politics to satisfy their urge and their itch and, and their longing for the next election cycle to feel hope in society, in this world. Or maybe they put their trust in wealth and materialism. And they think, well, if I have the right role at work in the right house and the right zip code, everything's gonna be good. Or maybe they've trusted in just family. If I have the family that I want, that I've always wanted, that I've always hoped for, then I'll be satisfied. Y'all, Jesus wants you to understand, and he wanted his followers to understand, he wants us this morning to understand that the answer to what we long for is not going to be found under the sun. It's only going to be found in Jesus. Understand what you have in Jesus. The treasure in the field and the pearl of great value. Well, in these parables, the the characters upon finding these things, what do they do? They, They both decide, I have to have it. They both be consumed with having the thing that they've discovered because they see the value of it. And so the man with the treasure covers it up and goes and liquidates his assets in order to buy the field that has the treasure. And the merchant who discovers the fine pearl, he recognizes the value and immediately goes about the process of obtaining it in a similar fashion. He has to have it. He's consumed with that desire. I am a sucker for anything Apple. I, I, don't, it, it's, I don't know who to blame other than, than Steve Jobs, right? I love how clean the products are. I love the design form factor and everything else. And if they release it, I, I, I may have never thought I need it, but now I'm like, I, I want it. I saw an advertisement a while back for a smart belt. I I don't know where I was. I think it was probably in one of those airline magazines that you pull out and read while you're flying somewhere. And I was like, who would ever buy a smart belt? Nobody would ever buy a smart belt. And right now, I still feel that way. But if Apple releases a smart belt next year, guys, I got to tell you, it's going to be a battle with the flesh not to to be first in line to to get that smart belt and be able to open my garage door by pushing my belt buckle or something weird like that. (laughs) Why? Why does it have such a hold on my life? I I don't know. It's a sin problem. You know, we need that level of desire for Jesus, but in an even greater measure. That we want Jesus. We want everything about Jesus, and we feel like we have to have Jesus. And that's that's these men here. And and there's really, there's there's kind of two types of desires in life, aren't there? 
There's a passive desire and an active desire. Let me give you an example of a passive desire. How many of you desire to breathe? Guessing everybody in the room is, is going to say, yeah, I desire to breathe. How many of you are giving cognizant thought to the fact that you desire to have that next breath that you're about to take? Probably not many of you in the room, right? You, you just are breathing. Or your synapses in your brain to be firing right now. Do you want those to keep going? You have that desire that those keep going, yes? And yet, that's a passive desire. Does that make sense? You're not cognitively aware of the fact that you desire those things, even though you do desire those things. Okay, there's that level of desire. But then the second kind of a desire, I would call an active desire. And that's the desire for the new Apple product, or that's the desire for a brand new car, or that's the desire for a, a redone kitchen, or that's the desire for a new pair of shoes, right? That, that's that desire that you say, I, I've identified this thing and I want this thing. I'm actively giving attention and thought and affection to acquiring this thing. That's an active desire. And that's what we're after here when it comes to Jesus. These men, they said, I actively desire the treasure. I actively desire the pearl. I, I want this. It's everything that I can do to, to, to think about. My whole life is now about getting this thing. And that's how we should be about Jesus. Because if everything that we talked about in point one about Jesus is true, that he is all of those things that, that we can put our hope in, then he should be what we desire more than anything else. We should desire Jesus because he is the answer to those marriage problems that we might be having right now. Because through the pattern of the gospel that he's provided for us, we can know what it looks like to love one another as Christ loved the church and to submit to our husbands, ladies, as the, the church does to Christ. We should desire Jesus because he's the answer to the loneliness that we feel. Because he has said that he is the friend of us in John 15. He says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friend. Or, or how about this one in Hebrews chapter 2, 11? Jesus says that he's not ashamed to call us brother or sister. He's the answer to the loneliness that we feel in this world. In fact, the very name that Jesus was called, Emmanuel, means what? God with us. We should desire Jesus because he is the answer to our aimlessness. What do I do with my life? I don't know anymore. I'm not satisfied in my job. I don't know where I want to go to school. I don't know what to do next. In Jesus, you have an answer to that. Because he's given you a mission and he's called us to fulfill that mission. Matthew 28. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We have that mission, and that mission is ours until we breathe our last. We should desire Jesus because he's the answer to our fears and our anxieties. He's the one who's opened the way to the throne of grace that we might find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4. He's the one that gives us the peace in exchange for our anxieties in Philippians chapter 4. And so we should desire Jesus. And when we desire something to this level, it becomes what we think about all the time, doesn't it? It's all-consuming. It's what we research. It's what we daydream about. It's what we spend our money on. It's what impacts the friends that we make. You Apple people aren't hanging out with the Android people, are you? Because they make your text messages green. You're, everybody's welcome here, by the way. Android and Apple alike. 
But that's the type of desire for these treasures that these men had. It was all-consuming. And that's Jesus' point here as he's teaching this parable, is that we should desire the kingdom of heaven. And again, let me remind you, like I told you in point number one, to desire the kingdom of heaven is only as effective as it is that we desire the king of the kingdom of heaven. But that's Jesus' point here. We should have this all-consuming passion and desire for him. Our second point this morning is this. Feed your desire for Jesus. Feed your desire for Jesus. When I'm researching a new piece of technology, my wife just, she's like, okay, whatever, you do that and just don't talk to me about it. Go talk to to somebody else about it. Because she knows I'm just going to keep going on it. I'm going to read reviews on it. I'm going to be on different sites out there. I'm going to be comparing them. I'm going to be watching YouTube videos about it. I'm just going to fully nerd out on whatever this new piece of technology is that I want to eventually get. Because why? Because I'm, I'm feeding my desire for this thing. Well, we need to be feeding our desire for Jesus. Think about this. Jesus said this in, in earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, for where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart will be also. And so, Christian, if we're going to desire Jesus, we need to make sure that our affections, our hearts are after Jesus. The Apostle Paul understood this. Philippians 1, 21 through 23. Philippians 1, 21 through 23. He said, for me to live is what? Is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Everything about my life is Jesus. And to die is gain. Why would death be gain for Paul? Because he would get to go and be with Jesus. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Are you there this morning, Christian? Can you say, I'm not asking you to, to, to be suicidal. That's not what Paul was driving at here. But I'm asking you to have an affection for Jesus that's so great that's so beyond your affection for anything else in this world that you would say, given the opportunity, give me Jesus and take the world. I'm not sure I understand. Siri doesn't understand. <laughs> but I hope we do. As that man left the field and that merchant left the pearl behind to go and do everything they needed to do to come back and get that pearl, my guess is that's all they could think about. Some diagnostic questions for us on this point. How often do you think about heaven? How often does it come to your mind? And when, when it comes to mind, what, what is it about heaven that you're thinking about? How often do you find yourself contemplating eternity? Do you want to be there? Again, can you say with the Apostle Paul, my desire is to depart and be with Jesus, for that is far better than seeing my grandkids, than seeing my children graduate high school, than getting married, than retirement, than the next promotion at work, than a bigger and nicer house. See, I remember growing up and often thinking about Jesus coming back and thinking, yeah, I want him to come back, but I would like him to wait until this. Until this, there's always going to be a this. Until we get to where Paul was. Where we can say, Jesus, my desire for you is so great that I want, come back now. 
Come back now. John Piper, this quote, if you stick around, you're going to hear this quote from me a lot because it's one of the most challenging quotes, I think, to me from him. But he talks about heaven and he says this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven, no sickness, with all the friends you have ever had on earth, in all the food you have ever liked, in all the leisure activities you have ever enjoyed, in all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? In other words, if you could have all of the perks of heaven without Jesus, would you want it? It's an unfair question because it's an impossible scenario. You can't have heaven without Jesus. The reason all of the perks of heaven exist is because of Jesus. And yet, when we think about heaven, when we think about there, are we more fixated on the blessings that we're going to enjoy or are we more fixated on Jesus? Are we more fixated, fixated on the kingdom or on the king? And I'm just saying we need to feed our desire for Christ. The treasure is the king. The pearl is Jesus. He's the one that makes the difference between heaven and hell. That's why John's description of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation ends this way. You can flip over there if you want in your Bibles to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible, last book. Well, obviously, last book of the Bible if it's the last chapter of the Bible. But in Revelation 22, John has described some pretty amazing things. He's already described in chapter 21 this place where all of our tears are going to be gone. There's no more sickness. There's no more sorrow. He's already described this amazingly beautiful place that's coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. He's, the, the, the streets of gold and, and the gates and it's just this beautiful, he's described all of it and yet here's the culmination of his description. You ready for it? Chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city and on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Here's the climax, you ready? The greatest thing about it is this, they will see his face. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no light or lamp of, or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Why is heaven worth it? It's because we will be with Jesus and we will see his face. You take away Jesus and you lose it all. So we need to feed our desire for Jesus. How can we wrap our mind around this a little bit more tangibly? I can go to the beach. Well, I, I used to be able to go to the beach, right? Now it's, it's way down south in, in Galveston. But in, in California, we lived about, what, 15, 20 minutes from the beach, and we went like five times in five years or something like that. But we, you can live and, and walk on the beach, and I can appreciate the beauty of the beach. I get it. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Give me mountains over the beach. I'm more that, that kind of person than I am the, the water kind of person. But I, I see the beauty, and yet if I 
walk on that same beach and see the same beauty and my wife is with me, the experience is ratcheted up to a, another entire level. That's a sliver of what we're talking about when it comes to the enjoyment of heaven versus the enjoyment of heaven as we enjoy it through Jesus. As we experience it in the presence of Christ. It's an infinitely greater enjoyment level. And so let me ask you the question, if we want to feed our desire for Jesus, what are the things in your life right now that are robbing your desires for Jesus? That are robbing your affections for Christ? Because here's the reality, you have an enemy at work. Peter said he's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone he may devour. And maybe Satan, because he's not omnipresent, isn't coming after you. You may not be high enough on the food chain. I don't think any of us in the room are necessarily as far as his target goes. But man, he's got a legion of demons at his disposal that are all about the same kind of a work. And they want to see you desire anything else other than Jesus. And so they're going to come after your marriages. And they're going to make you want to idolize having the perfect spouse instead of desiring Jesus to shine through your marriage the way that you both live out your roles in a way that's a visible representation of Christ in the church. Or your parenting. The enemy is going to come after your parenting and want you to idolize having the perfect kids instead of shepherding your children to follow Jesus and desiring Jesus to allow you to steward those gifts from God in such a way that they grow up to follow Jesus themselves. Or they're going to come after your career and they're going to cause you to idolize power or status that comes with promotion and progression instead of desiring Jesus to use you in your job as a, a missionary and a unique mission field to cause other people to come to know him as their Lord and Savior. Or the enemy is going to come after you when it comes to your health and cause you to idolize the, the perfect health instead of desiring Jesus to be glorified in your body, as the Apostle Paul said, whether by life or by death. We need to feed our desire for Jesus in every square inch of our lives every facet, every area of our lives. It needs to be an all-consuming desire. Don't let the enemy take what the Father has given you to stir your affections for Jesus and cause your affections to be for something else. Feed your desire for Jesus. These two have this all-consuming desire. The man with the field and the, the, the per, pearl merchant, and they, they, they found this one thing they had, so what did they do? They went and sold everything to get it. They went and said, take it all, I want that. Verse 44, then in his joy, he goes and sells everything to buy the field. Verse 46, who on finding the one pearl of great value went and sold everything to buy it. Notice the desire of these men drives them to action. They weren't thinking, oh, that's a nice treasure in the field, and at least I know where the treasure is, but I'm going to leave it buried for now, and maybe I'll get it later if I get a windfall over here that's going to make it convenient for me to obtain that. Oh, yeah, that's a nice pearl, but maybe a better pearl will come along down the road. No, they said, this is it. This is it. I need it. I desire it with this all-consuming desire. What do I need to do to get it? And so they yield everything. They give up everything in order to obtain it. In the estimation of these two men, nothing else they had was more valuable than that treasure or that pearl. The Apostle Paul got here with Jesus. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Philippians 3, verse 4, Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, 
as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Okay? We read that and we know the rest of the story. And we read those things kind of with a side eye at Paul going, yeah, but those things are all bad, Paul, because you need to count everything as lost for the value of Jesus. Put yourself in the original shoes. Right? What Paul is listing off here from a Jewish perspective, there was nothing better than what Paul was listing off there. This is something to truly boast in. Paul's saying, you want to go toe-to-toe on a, on a resume? Let's do it. And he lists all these things. And these are all things that would have, in the eyes of any Jew, put Paul in the top ranks. And in fact, he was. He was one of the chief Pharisees before meeting Jesus. But then meeting Jesus, what happened? Everything transformed in his mind. He found the treasure, he found the pearl, and it changed everything that he once held dear. Everything that he once thought was valuable. And it became worthless to him as he continues on in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted loss. That word means I counted as a liability. Why was it a liability to Paul? Because it was tempting him to want something more than Jesus. And so Paul, in his all-consuming passion for Jesus, said this, Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Do you see that Paul had the same mentality of the man with the treasure in the field and the merchant with the pearl? And Christian, we should have it too. That Jesus is so desirable that we're like, okay, Jesus, take everything and give me Jesus. In order that I may gain Christ. Once saved, Paul's desires were rewired by the Spirit at work within him. Y'all, lest we cross over into the line of we need to somehow purchase Jesus with something that we bring to the table. That's not what this is about. The point here was that what they had found was more valuable than anything they owned. And they were willing to let go of everything else if they could only have that. And that's true of Jesus. He's with more than anything else this world could offer us. And we need to be willing to let go of everything else for Jesus. Jesus said this plainly in Luke 14.33. Luke 14.33 says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You may cringe at that thought. But let me reassure you that I I don't believe this morning God is asking you literally to give up everything, to sell everything, to walk away from every relationship in exchange for following Jesus. But here's what I do know this morning. He's asking you to be willing to let go of anything, anything in order to follow Jesus. Remember when Jesus said, anyone who does not hate father or mother, brother or sister, is not worthy of being my disciple. Has that ever rubbed anybody the wrong way? Does that, does that jive with the rest of Scripture that what God teaches us about how we should love other people? What in the world was Jesus talking about there? Well, he's saying, when push comes to shove, are you going to choose me over even the most close relationships that you have in this world? Do you love me more, so much more, that even your love for your family Somebody would look at it and go, compared to how much you love Jesus, man, it looks like you even hate them. Our affections for Jesus need to be that strong that nothing else would get in the way of them. 
Not zip code, not status, not friends, not ambitions, not retirement, not relationship, not sin, not comfort, nothing. That Christ is more valuable than all of those things. Because when we come to Christ, everything changes in our perspective. Final point this morning is this. Reevaluate everything in light of Jesus. Reevaluate everything in light of Jesus. Before I met my wife, Amanda, I had dated other girls. But after I started dating her, none of those old relationships mattered to me at all. What once I may have thought was important was totally unimportant. Because my perspective changed. I reevaluated what really mattered. They didn't matter to me anymore. My wife was all that mattered to me. Growing up, maybe you thought Hot Wheels were were pretty fun, pretty cool. That's having a resurgence now. People are going like scouring Walmarts, like crazy people. Maybe you're one of them, and forgive me, but people are showing up as Walmarts are like opening to see what are the new Matchbox cars that are on the shelves. Maybe you grew up and you loved Matchbox cars. And if somebody had, had, had come to you over to your house or your parents' house and, and they said, hey, I got a gift for you. I brought you a new Mustang. You would have thought, great, I got a new Matchbox car coming in. They would have pulled out the Matchbox car and handed it to you. You would have been like, this is so cool. You'd have been looking at this Mustang. You would have added it to your collection, okay? Now, as a grown-up, if somebody comes over to your house and says, hey, I got a gift for you. I bought you a brand new Mustang. You're not expecting them to whip a match- Matchbox car out of their pocket, right? And if they do, you're not going to be super excited about that. You're going to say, what are you thinking? Why would you get my hopes up like that? You're going to go run to the front door and open it up expecting to see a brand new Mustang in the driveway. And then you're going to look at that friend and go, thank you, right? Because if it was just a Matchbox car, you'd look at it and go, thanks? Is this for me or for my kids? Why? Because your affections have changed. Your desires have changed. Your taste has changed. What's important to you has changed. Well, likewise, when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, our affections should change. When we think about this world, what was once valuable to us now in light of Christ changes. I'm not saying that everything that was once valuable to you is now invaluable. Your spouse, your kids, your family, your friends. I'm not saying that all of a sudden you look at them with disdain. I'm saying you look at them through new lenses. You look at them now and say, how does this marriage feed my desire for Jesus? How does my parenting feed my desire for Jesus? How does my work feed my desire for Jesus? Because it's all about him. To know Christ. Jesus changes our affections for him such that our love for him gradually eclipses our love for anything else. Because he's better than anything else. Think about what we have in Christ again. In Christ there is forgiveness from sin. 1 John 1.9 tells us that. That in Christ there is forgiveness of sin. In Christ, there's freedom from shame and condemnation. Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. In Christ, there's significant purpose. Matthew 28.19. Go therefore and make disciples. In Christ, there is worth. We are now the sons and daughters of God brought into his family. In Christ, there's hope beyond death. 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection that guarantees our future. In Christ, there's hope of eternal inheritance, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. And the world can't offer any of that. And so we reevaluate everything in light of Christ. So where you once maybe lived for your career, now you are going to work for the Lord, not as unto men, 
because your evaluation of what really matters has changed. Or whereas once you lived for that woman or that man, you now live out your God-given roles in the context of your marriage because you know that God has a plan for your life and for your marriage to honor your Savior regardless of whether or not you have the perfect spouse. Where you once lived for the ideal of that perfect family, that perfect future, you now live content in the life that God has given you because you realize that he's given you a unique place, a unique opportunity, a unique circumstance to serve him in the place that he's put you. Again, does this mean that we can't have fun or have nice things? No. It doesn't. But it just means that what really matters to us changes and is transformed by Jesus. Consider Moses' example in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. Moses said this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. Some diagnostic questions for us is on this point is, few things. First, what are the things that your life reveals that you love? Someone were to watch your life for a week, what would they conclude about your life that you really love? What are the affections that your patterns would reveal? What are the things in your life that you feel right now this morning that you could not live without? What are those things that when you hear that Jesus says, man, anyone who does not renounce all that he has is not worthy to be my disciple, that you hold a little bit tighter in your heart and say, okay, Jesus, take everything, just not this. And then the next question is, what if he asked for that thing? What if you lost that thing? Is your affection for Christ still enough that even if he took that away, You'd be able to say with Job, the Lord takes and the Lord gives. Still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven and the king of heaven, both immensely, immeasurably valuable. But the kingdom is only valuable because the king is there. To know the king, that's our aim first and foremost. To know the king, and then next week we're going to talk about what it means to make him known. But the question this morning is, have you come to know him? Have you come to know him like this? The treasure, the pearl. Such a, you're willing to say, take everything for me, from me, because I, I only want Jesus. On your way out this morning, maybe you'll pick up that penny on the ground, right? Maybe it's one of them. Maybe I just picked up $1.7 million. Probably not, but maybe. But I certainly pray that this week you'll give more careful thought to the incredible wealth that we already have in Jesus. In a world consumed with that question, right? That's the title of this sermon. How do I get rich fast? I'm here to tell you this morning that if you're in Christ, you're already there. If you don't know Jesus, then the offer is there this morning. The offer to, to come to Christ is there this morning. To repent from your sins and to acknowledge that you need salvation and to trust that Jesus is that Savior, that he died on the cross for, for your sins so that you can be forgiven and that he's risen from the dead so that you can live with him forever. 
Let's pray and then we're going to sing one more song. God, we thank you for Christ, the treasure, the pearl of great value. We thank you for all that we have in him, all you've done for us in him. God, we pray and ask this morning that you give us a greater sense of that value, a greater sense of the richness that we have in Jesus this week. Lord, I pray that we would have a a deeper sense of contentment no matter what our situations are. And there are so many that are represented in this room. No two are alike. And yet, we know that Jesus is enough to meet any of the needs that we have. God, I pray for those that are hurting that Christ would be their comfort. God, I pray for those that are anxious that Christ would be their peace. God, I pray for those that are, are doing well that Christ would still be their chief treasure and their chief love and their chief affection. Lord, we pray that Jesus would be everything for us and that you would sustain that, that affection, that desire until the day that you call us home and we get to see him face to face. What a day that will be. We long for it. We pray for it. We expect it. We hope it. Hope for it, God. We, we pray. Lord, I, I pray with, with genuine request, Jesus, come quickly. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.